Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Thank you, Phil, for leading us this morning. You, uh, you were the whole team this morning. Um, yes, uh, last week I, you felt a little of that pain. Oh, it was, it was great. It was awesome to be able to do so. It's awesome. Always, it's amazing to be here, always, as always. Um, we're returning this morning, if you want to take your Bibles, as I get prepared. We're returning this morning to our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been in a bo- the book of Ephesians for quite some time now, and we find ourselves in the midst of this time of study uh, through, this, uh, through this amazing letter. I would consider it to be the climax of New Testament theology. Well, I praise the Lord that I can be here this morning. Uh, as, you, as most of you know, my family's not here. Uh, this morning they are at they are at the marine recruiter's office with my son Andrew, whom most of you know and have been around for quite some time. He is leaving to go to Jacksonville to go to MEPS and then on to boot camp uh, on Monday, Lord willing. I was a little late getting here this morning because I was there with my family. It was a wonderful time. Uh, Dr. LeClaire, uh, there, the principal at Santa Fe High School, uh, was willing to come this morning and graduate Andrew officially uh, from high school, and so he, they did a little graduation ceremony for him and another young man this morning there, and we were so happy to, to see it. I have to admit, my wife was stoic. She was fine, and I was, tears were all over the place, and I felt a little embarrassed, but but that's okay, because I don't mind being a little bit emotional at times. Uh, I plan to go back, just so you know, I plan to go back and be there when he leaves to go to Jacksonville. The world, as Phil mentioned, the world is a dangerous place. I think we've come to see that even more over the past few months, right? Amen. Um, the world is a dangerous place. The young men in his position and all these young folks that we have around face a world that's completely different than the world that that many of us faced. Um, I would ask for Andrew specifically that you would pray for him as he embarks on this journey. Uh, More than anything, I would pray or ask that you pray that he would seek the Lord in his life. Um, He's just like any other, many, many other uh, young men who believe that they have the world by the tail. And I just pray and hope that he would come to see his need for Christ. And really, that should be our prayer for everyone, amen? That should be our prayer for all these young folks, that they would come to see their need for Christ, uh, come to fully see their great need for Christ. Let me pray for us, and let's get started in Ephesians chapter 4. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you as the song, as we just sang, we thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, our Redeemer. Thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son to redeem for yourself a people, to die on the cross, to purchase with your own blood the church. Father, this morning I pray that this sermon would be a defense of the faith, that would be a defense of the faith that firmly shows where we stand as a church and who we are as a church and what we believe as a church and why we believe it. Father, I pray that we would earnestly contend for the faith. 
once for all, handed down to the saints. We praise you this morning. We thank you for our time of worship. We thank you for our brother Phil bringing uh, the songs to us, praying for us, reading scripture this morning. We praise you for his, his uh, work in that way. We thank you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning... We find ourselves, as I've said, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through, 4, 4 through 6 specifically. I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 through 6 so that I can set the context for us. This is the Apostle Paul writing, I believe, to the church at Ephesus. He, here's what he says, starting in verse 1. Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, this morning, I want to start by telling you the story of a man and his family. This is the world's oldest story. It's absolutely true, and, and it helps us make sense of our broken world. If you don't understand this story, you are susceptible to the lies of this world. You're susceptible to the lies that are being propagated in our world even right now, even today. Therefore, we need to understand this story because it is the basis for understanding the rest of Scripture. Now, many of you heard, have heard this story. Most of you have heard this story many times. But let me tell it to you in a different way, maybe with a little different twist. You see, this was a dream family with a perfect life. They lived in a, a plush and gorgeous garden that cared for itself almost. It was perfect. And we might not realize it, but this garden sat in a rich land with abundant natural resources, including the finest gold that any man has ever seen. The husband and wife had jobs that were perfectly suited for them. They never complained about their work because it was perfect. They had a perfect mission statement, a mandate to fill that great land. And they had an intimate relationship with their creator, the one who created all of these things. They bore his image and his likeness. They were, this man was, king, a king and priest of God in this great land. You see, God was the source of their life. But one day, it all came crashing down. The man knew and understood that he should listen to his God, his Creator. He should listen and obey his word. You see, his Creator, God, had told him not to eat from this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that in the day that he ate from it, that he would surely die. Yet he listened to the serpent, and he ate. So God banned him, banished him, that is, from his presence. He drove him out of the garden. From that point forward, everything was different. 
The man and woman no longer had an intimate relationship with their Creator. God who had created this garden and this perfect land is holy, and He cannot be in the presence of sin. You see, we have to recognize His holiness to understand why He drove them from His presence. God cursed that land so that it would bring forth thorns and thistles. Instead of taking care of itself, now it had to be worked by the sweat of the brow. This man Adam had to work exceedingly hard for his bread, but God promised to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who had deceived Eve. Her seed, the fruit of her body, would deliver them. Now, it wasn't long. It wasn't long after this, after they had been driven out of the garden, that the seed, a seed came. It wasn't the seed. There's a little boy named Cain. And then another, a boy named Abel. You see, they were alike in most ways, a spitting image of their father Adam. The main difference is one tilled the ground and the other grew livestock. Both were incredibly successful despite the obvious challenges. Cain, for his part, was especially proud. He was proud of his role in overcoming God's curse of the ground. One day they brought sacrifices to God, and Abel brought some of the firstlings of his flock, and, and Cain brought some of the fruit of, his, of the ground. God accepted Abel's offering, yet he did not accept Cain's. It seems that God didn't care for Cain's great pride. See, Cain thought he was doing it on his own. Cain thought that he was, he was redeeming the land and redeeming the people. This started what might be the greatest sibling rivalry ever known to man. But it was short-lived. Cain lured Abel into his field and he murdered him in cold blood. Premeditated, first-degree murder. God's promise of death bore its ugly fruit. Now I want you to think about this. Think carefully with me. These two had basically the same blood in their veins. They were carbon copies of one another. They were the perfect family, at least starting out. Horrifically, Cain murdered Abel, his brother, possibly with his bare hands. But here's what I want you to understand. It was the sin in Cain's heart, which caused him to rise up and murder and kill Abel. He killed his brother, his very own brother, made in the likeness of their father and in the image of God because of the sin in his heart. Beloved, every murder since that day has been committed for this same root cause. Just a few generations after Cain, a man named Lamech even bragged about how many folks he killed. Do you remember King David? He had his friend and general Uriah killed because he didn't want the sin of his adultery with Bathsheba to be revealed. The list goes on and on. The reasons for killing multiplies, but there is one simple root. The sin which reigns in our heart. 
the sin that reigns in our flesh. And you must then grasp this truth to understand what we are witnessing today. You see, the reasons for murder are myriad. We murder out of anger. We murder out of pride, vanity. We murder for resources and money. We murder for power and control. And yes, we kill because someone looks and acts differently than us. The root of all of this killing, all of this murder, is the sinfulness of our hearts, just like Cain. George Floyd was a black man. Derek Chauvin, it's a name you have probably heard as well, was a white man. Many, or most, believe that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Many believe he did so because of the color of, of George Floyd's skin. Now, the reason may have been George Floyd's race. May have been his race. But the root was the sin lurking in Derek's heart. You see, Derek is no different than Cain. And let me tell you something else. Friends, but for the grace of God, you and I are no different than Cain or Derek. Now, you may be too woke for skin color to be your motivation for murder, but have you ever been angry with someone? Friend, our Lord Jesus says that you have murdered them in your heart if you're angry with them. Just think of the current riots. Look at all of the angry people. They are committing murder in their hearts, if not truly committing murder. If not actually committing physical murder, they're murdering people in their heart. And what is their reason? As crazy as it sounds, the color of a man's skin is their reason. They're angry because a white man murdered a black man. Yet, we as the church should realize that it's the sin lurking in our hearts. Friend, your sin is an offense to the holiness of God. The same as Adam who was driven out of the garden. And because of your sin, you cannot be in His presence. You cannot have a relationship with Him. Church, everyone, black, white, doesn't matter. Everyone faces this very same dilemma. <coughs> we have sinned against a holy God and we have been banned from His presence. The question then becomes, how can sinful men and women have a relationship with their Creator and with their Sustainer of life? How can we be made clean before a holy God? How can we avoid eternal death? Not just physical death, but eternal death, suffering the wrath of this holy God. 
Beloved, that is our greatest problem, and that is the problem that is common to all mankind, no matter their color. This is the conundrum that George, George Floyd, George, faced when he died. It's the dilemma that Derek Chauvin faces. We face the same problem. The answer, beloved, is found only in the sin-atoning death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only answer that there is. For all its wisdom, the world isn't asking the most important questions regarding this situation. Sadly, many in the church aren't asking these questions either. They're more concerned about the color of a man's skin than they are uh, concerned about where George Floyd is right now and where Derek Chauvin is going. See, the biggest question and the biggest problem is that we should be asking is, did George Floyd know Jesus? And does Derek Chauvin know Jesus? I promise you their color won't matter when they stand before a holy God. Let me say this right here. It is a lie from the pit of hell to believe that racism is the greatest problem which faces this nation or even African-American people. Our sin against a holy God is our greatest problem. No matter your race, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you see, racism is a sin against a holy God. But not for the reason you might think. Beloved, race is nothing but a social construct. Do you realize that? It's nothing but a social construct. Race is just an artificial way to separate people. It is the inevitable consequence of the lie of evolution. And why do you think I started with the story of creation this morning? Because I want you to see that, that we are all created by a holy God. And the New Testament won't let you off the hook on that. Acts 17.26, Paul tells the Greeks, he says this, in Athens, he says, he, he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You see, he made all of us from one man and one woman. There are nations, that's translated from the word ethnos, that's in the Greek, where we get our word ethnicity, Every man and every woman has descended from Adam and Eve. Therefore, beloved, we are all... Thank you, Phil. Therefore, we are all people of color. Do you not realize that? We're all people of color. Outside of a few who are missing the gene to make melanin, we all have some level of pigment in our skin. Get this. We are diverse in culture, but we are basically the same. We come in different shapes. We come in different colors. We come in different sizes. But, beloved, we are all human. We're all human. 
Now let me be clear. Racism does affect the church. But the answer to racism is the same as the answer for all sin. The gospel. That's the answer. And guess what? The gospel is all about reconciliation. Did you know that? It's all about reconciliation. First, reconciliation with who? Our maker, right? Our creator. Secondly, reconciliation with our fellow man. Therefore, beloved, it is evil to perpetuate differences in the church because this goes against the gospel. Any system in the church which establishes different classes of believers is an absolutely evil system. Any movement in the church which creates division is an evil movement. I need to say it this way. Let me just say it just straightforward. Critical race theory and intersectionality absolutely have no place in the church of the living God. These systems establish classes of believers and they create divisions in the church. Therefore, they are evil. And let me say something else, beloved. Black lives do matter. But any movement which creates division in the church is a doctrine of demons. Beloved, I pray that you will recognize that these are an attack on the unity of the church of the living God. And you might ask, why am I saying this and why is this so crucial? Well, those questions bring us to our study today. In God's sovereign timing, we happen to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And I'm not certain. I'm not certain. I think I told Jonathan this on Friday night. I'm not certain that we could choose a more perfect passage regarding the situation which faces the church today. Let me, let me be very clear. The current events that we face present a great dilemma for the church. You know why? Because the true church and the message of the church stands into, the message of the church, the gospel, stands in direct opposition to the spirit of this age. But it always has, right? Oh, we try to go along with the spirit of the age. We try to be, you know, relevant. But we're not relevant, beloved. Called to be holy, not relevant. The church always stands in direct opposition to the spirit of this age, of the age. Yet I am certain that it's no different than the issues that were facing the church at Ephesus in Paul's day. We face the same problem, actually. And for us to see this, we must understand and read this letter in its historical context let me say it this way friends the church has always let me let me underscore always the true church has always been a diverse group of people supernaturally unified in the body of christ by the spirit always Always has been from the beginning of the church, always will be. The question becomes then, how do people who once hated one another now love one another and live with one another in Christ? In other words, how do we live out the truth of the gospel that we truly have been reconciled to our Creator and reconciled to one another? And that's a question that only the gospel itself can answer. This morning's sermon 
we're going to highlight that the gospel was the answer in Paul's day. And church, the gospel is still the answer today. I, I hope that you'll see this. I hope that you'll understand the great importance of, of unity in the church and that we must, as a church, fight for unity around the message of the gospel because it is our only hope. It is absolutely our only hope. You must recognize that as Christians in the church, God has given us a supernatural, let me say that again, a supernatural unity, and we must do everything in our power to preserve it. Let's look together at Ephesians 4, 4 4-6. Now, the seven-point sermon will probably scare most of you that have heard my preaching but I think I can get through it pretty quickly. In these verses, 4 through 6, Paul gives a, the sevenfold bases for supernatural unity in the body of Christ. You're the, I wrote basis, it actually should be bases, which is plural for basis. But he gives the sevenfold bases for supernatural unity in the body of Christ. First, there is one body. There is one body. Paul writes. In verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Before we begin, though, to unpack these verses, let me remind you of what we've learned in verses 1 through 3. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Here, Paul calls the saints at Ephesus to what we have deemed are called the worthy walk. Now, I've argued for the last couple of sermons that this verse forms a purpose statement for the rest of this letter you see paul is exhorting the church to walk in a manner that is worthy of the call which he has described in the first three chapters of this letter this call then applies to every true christian and to every true church you see we are called to walk we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and of christ our lord and last week what we found was is that this worthy walk is actually a lowly walk First, it personifies humility and gentleness. Look at verse 2. He says, We are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, and we are to flee pride. We are to assess ourselves correctly before a holy God, seeing ourselves as fully dependent upon Him for everything. We are to recognize our utter sinfulness in the light of His holiness. We are to see our brokenness and our need for His mercy and grace. We are also to recognize that every gift and every talent that we have comes directly from God Himself. You see, true humility recognizes that we are nothing outside of Christ. Everything that we are comes from Him. True humility leads us then to behave in gentleness toward one another. You see, the truly humble and gentle man will not run over those around him with his words and actions he may disagree with you he may disagree with what you're saying but he will never run over you he will never run over you with his words and actions but he will act in love toward others you see beloved what we said last week is the gentle man the truly humble and gentle man is not weak but he's strong Yet his strength is completely under control. He'll never use his strength as an advantage over you. Secondly, 
the worthy walk practices patience and forbearance. Again, look at verse 2. Paul says, Paul says that we are to be patient. That we are to act with patience, walk with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Patience brings in the I, I aspect of time or the idea of time to the, to the ideas of humility and gentleness, gentleness. We may be called to endure great trials and suffering for long periods of time without complaint while remaining humble and gentle. The world knows nothing of this type of suffering. Uh, Paul was an example of this type of suffering. As he wrote this letter, he had endured five years of imprisonment and, his, and he had suffered for the sake of, of the gospel. And we know from history that, and from his further writings that, uh, that he would continue to suffer for the sake of the gospel and that it would only increase. Not only are we called to be patient, we're called to show tolerance for one another in love. This phrase is, gives us a hint as, as to why we're called to the worthy walk. Paul knows that for the church to be unified, we must bear with one another in love. We must desire what is best for our fellow Christians. We must seek the highest good for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The worthy walk, thirdly, is a walk that preserves unity and peace. Church, we've already said it. We have been given a supernatural unity in the Holy Spirit. As such, we're called to preserve what we've been given. In the words of Johnny Erickson Tata, she says this, Believers are never told to become one. We're already one. And we're expected to act like it. End quote. This leads us back to where we ended last week. You may recall that I ended the sermon with the following quote. Looking forward to this sermon today. The church, this is a quote from Charles Hodge. He says this, the church everywhere is represented as one. It is one body, one family, one fold, one kingdom. It is one because it is pervaded by one spirit. We are all baptized into one spirit so as to become, says the apostle, one body. End quote. Beloved, this is the first basis for our supernatural unity. We have been made into one body. And in Pauline theology, the church is represented as one body, the body of Christ. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, uh, verse 20, 22 is actually Paul's first mention in this letter of the church. Paul says that, that in, in verse 22, that God the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and has gave Him as head over all things to the church. Then he describes the church as Christ's body, which is the fullness of Christ. What that means, beloved, is that as the church, we are the full representation of Christ in this world. We have been given His authority and His power. But what is the body of Christ? It's made up of believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. According to these verses, the body of Christ is made up of those who were near and those who were far off, Jews and Gentiles. Now, you may be thinking that our world feels, feels incredibly divided and dangerous today. And beloved, it is. But there, was no, there is no greater divide that has ever existed than what existed between Jews, the Jews and the pagan nations around them. I mean, you do realize that Samaritans were actually 
half Jewish. They had intermarried with some of the, the surrounding peoples, and the Jews wouldn't even walk through, wouldn't even be seen, wouldn't, wouldn't interact at all with a Samaritan, which made uh, Jesus' uh, interaction with the woman at the well in John 4 all the more incredible. She was a woman, but she was also a Samaritan woman. And Jews wouldn't even, they would go around Samaria. They wouldn't even go through it. They'd go around it, out of their way to stay away from it. <coughs> Christ has made both Jew and Gentile into one. The uncircumcised, unclean barbarians and the circumcised, clean Jews, He has made into one. He made the two into a new man. He did this by shedding His own blood at, at the cross and He purchased the church with His own blood. And at the cross, according to these verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, at the cross, He reconciled us to Himself, and He reconciled Jew and Gentile. And He abolished in His flesh the hate, the enmity, the hate that was between them. And He made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, thus establishing the church, thus establishing the one body. And He reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross. Church, our Lord's death reconciled us to Him and to each other. Therefore, as I said earlier, any doctrine or movement that works to divide what Christ has reconciled is absolutely evil. It's the doctrine of demons. We have been given supernatural unity as one body in Christ. And according to Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all divided in Christ Jesus. No, it doesn't say that. You and I both know it doesn't say that. It says we are all one in Christ Jesus. And you could add any supposed race that exists today. If you are in the body of Christ, you are one with each other. Let me give you the second basis for our supernatural unity in Christ as the body of Christ. We have been given one spirit. Look at the text in 4.4. There's one body and one spirit. Ephesians 1.13 was Paul's first mention of the spirit in this letter. He declares to the Ephesians, that they had been sealed, they have been secured in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. They have been made secure in Christ. In Ephesians 2.18, he tells them that they have been given access uh, to the Father through one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In 2.22, if you look at 2.22, he says that the church is being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Literally, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling in the church. Beloved, we have been made a dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit. And as such, you and I are bound together by the Spirit. One Spirit. And let me just say this. It might be, I might inflame things here, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. I'm a big boy. I'm not talking about see no Christians. You know, Christians in name only. 
I'm talking about show-nuff Christians. I'm talking about those who are in Christ. Those whose spiritual walk show that they are in Christ. We've been, we have been given, those who are show-nuff Christians have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been made one in the Spirit. We have been given supernatural unity in the Spirit. And you and I, those show-nuff Christians, are called to preserve this unity of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that's why we call each other brothers and sisters, you know that, right? why we call each other brethren that's why i use the word my, my family laughs at me i use the word beloved a lot so I have, to, I have to mix it up any movement or doctrine which threatens our oneness in the spirit is an affront to the spirit and may i say it again it's evil it's absolutely evil this leads us to the third basis for our supernatural unity. We've been given one hope. Look at verse 4 again. It says, Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Back in Ephesians 1.18, Paul wrote, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You see, Paul wants the church to have their eyes opened to understand all that that we have been given in salvation through the gospel. As Christians, we have been chosen from the foundation of the world. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. We've been given hope in and through the gospel. Paul wrote, writes in Romans 5, 5, that this hope, the hope that we have been given as Christians, this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's, who has been given to us. Friend, there is no other hope in this world. There is only hope in one name. As Peter proclaimed in Acts 4.12, and there is no salva- there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Before Christ, beloved, we had no hope in this world. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of uh, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We lived in the l- lust of our flesh. We had no hope in this world. And let me tell you something. If you are a Gentile, and I think most of you are here, Gentiles, you were doubly condemned. In chapter 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. He says this, having no hope and without God in this world. So if you, according to Paul, if you were a Gentile, you were doubly condemned. Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope of this world. We have that message of hope. We are to preach that message to a lost and dying world. It shouldn't surprise us when the world tries to find hope in movements or theories. We shouldn't think it's odd when the streets are flooded with riots and protests. You see, people try to find, people who don't have hope try to find hope in these things. Right? 
That's why they're flooding the streets. I think there's hope there, but there's no hope there. The church must not buy into these messages because there's no hope in them. There's one hope, and that's the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anybody or if anyone teaches there's hope in anything else, it is the doctrine of demons. Let's look at the next basis for our supernatural unity. There's one Lord. These go fast. Paul says there is one Lord. Here he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He is He has already referenced the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now he reminds the Ephesians of the ministry of the Son of God. It is the Lord Jesus who has redeemed us by His blood. We sang the song earlier. It is Christ who gives us hope and salvation. That's chapter 1, verse 12. It is Jesus, our Lord, who who has been given headship over the church. That's chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It was Christ Jesus who brought Jews and Gentiles into one body, giving both access to the Father. Beloved, the church has been given one Lord. As Christians, we are in Christ. We have been redeemed by His blood. And may I say it? It's evil to teach that we've been redeemed in any other way. Let me give you the fifth basis for our supernatural unity. There is one faith. There's one faith. Look at verse 5. One faith. This refers, I believe, to the entire body of Christian belief. This is the orthodox doctrine which Paul has taught to the Ephesians and to all the churches. Jude says, this is the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's Jude 4. He calls for us, Jude calls for us in Jude 4, he calls for us to contend for this faith. Quite frankly, church, I don't concern myself with what the world believes or teaches. The world teaches worldly wisdom. What else do you expect? James says in James 3.15, that's earthly, natural, and demonic. He goes on to say that where this type of wisdom exists, there is order or disorder and selfish ambition and every other evil thing. You see, I care about what we teach in the church. My concern is for the purity of Christian doctrine. And I'm afraid, as I look around the church, I'm afraid that we've allowed people to creep into the church who deny the grace of our God and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Scary, isn't it? Beloved, we have one Lord and one faith for which we are to earnestly contend. And according to Paul, look at your text, we have one baptism. That's the the next, the sixth basis of our supernatural unity now there's much debate among commentators what paul means here but many many believe that he's referring to water baptism but i think that first corinthians 12 13 may shed some needed light paul says in first corinthians 12 13 by for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether jews or greeks whether slaves or free and we were made to drink from of one spirit now if you might notice that verse has similar overtones to the current verses of Ephesians. Right? With one spirit, one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, we're made to drink with one spirit. It also makes sense since water baptism is an outward act which symbolizes a reality, symbolizes the reality of what has incurred, 
occurred, that is, within us. You see, at salvation, Christ baptizes us with what? The Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to realize that the church, the spiritual body of Christ, is formed as believers are immersed by Christ with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every believer that has been baptized in the Holy Spirit and are now in the body of Christ. And due to this Spirit baptism, for all believers, we are now one in Christ. Therefore, Paul says there's one baptism. One baptism. So I'm not sure why the commentators argue about that. I think it's fairly clear. Let me give you the seventh basis for our supernatural unity in Christ. We have one Father. Look at your text, verse 6. Paul says, We have one God and Father over all who is of all who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, we serve one God and Father of all. According to Paul, He, the Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He has chosen us from the foundation of the world. That's chapter 1, verse 4. He has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 5. He, the Father, has freely bestowed His grace upon us. That's chapter 1, verse 6. And according to chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, we've already seen it. Both Jews and Gentiles are given access to the Father through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And according to Paul, in, in chapter 3, verse 15, every family in heaven and on earth has derived its name from the Father. <clears throat> one Father, who is of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Beloved, we are united in one body and one spirit, by one Spirit. We have been given one hope, of our calling. We serve one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We possess one faith, one body of belief which for which we must contend. We have been given or we have been baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit. And we worship one God and Father who is over all things. Beloved as Christians, you and I have been reconciled to the Father through the shed blood of Christ. And we have been united with other believers from diverse cultures and from diverse backgrounds and from many nations all over this planet throughout the church age. Because Christ has put the, to death the, the hate, the enmity that once existed between us. And as a Christian, you have been left here to proclaim this message, this message of the gospel, this message of reconciliation. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. I want you to listen to this considering the current events in our nation, and I want you to listen to this considering what we have just learned about the Christian faith and who we are as Christians, and what the gospel it truly is. As Christians, I beg you to consider these words as you read and post on social media. 
Listen, starting in verse 16. Therefore, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, the the old distinctions have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Listen to verse 18. Now all these things are from God. You see, if, if anyone comes preaching to you doctrines that divide, that is not from God. But Paul says, these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul, what is the ministry of reconciliation? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Remember that separation I talked about at the beginning of the sermon? Remember being banished, that you and I are banished? In Christ, He's reconciling us, the world, to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul, what is that word of reconciliation? Tell me, what is that word of reconciliation? I want to know. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul, what is this ministry of reconciliation? What is this word of reconciliation? I want to know. Verse 21, it's this simple. If you make it any more than this, it's adding to the gospel. Verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few minutes, you're going to celebrate communion. You're going to proclaim His death, what He has done on our behalf to reconcile Himself to us and reconcile us as one body in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. We praise You for this incredible, incredible passage. Pray that we would heed it, that we would live it by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.